Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 28 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. My name is Ibrahim Hassan. In this episode, I'm going to discuss the latest Freedom of Information developments, as well as decisions from the Tribunal and the Information Commissioner in the first part of 2012. These include when deleted information is held, private emails and text messages, vexatious requests, employment tribunal statistics, social work records of the deceased, senior officers' interests, job application information, and tender pricing information. First of all, a quick review of recent developments in the world of FOI. The Justice Select Committee has now finished hearing evidence for its post-legislative scrutiny of the Freedom of Information Act. The committee asked various parties, including the media, politicians and public authorities, to submit evidence in answer to the following questions. Does the Freedom of Information Act work effectively? What are the strengths and weaknesses of the Act? And is the Act operating in the way that it was intended to? The committee is expected to report before the summer recess of Parliament. Whilst much has been written and submitted about what changes the government should make to the freedom of information regime, some changes are more likely to be recommended than others. Firstly, we can expect a new exemption for frivolous requests. The Information Commissioner has told the committee, as well as a recent conference, that he does not mind an exemption being introduced to alleviate the burden of requests for frivolous information. For example, zombie invasion plans. I think this new exemption is being offered by the Information Commissioner's Office as a sacrificial lamb to try and deflect some of the criticism from authorities that claim that they are inundated with nuisance requests that clearly have no purpose or value. But the committee may feel that it needs to go further in terms of its recommendations. I think we can expect a change to the Freedom of Information fees regime. Many of those who have responded to the committee's call for evidence have expressed concerns about the sheer cost of dealing with FOI requests, although the basis of calculation of some of the figures seems highly dubious. It's likely, though, that changes are made to allow more activities to be included as part of the £450 or £600 limit, including perhaps the time it takes to redact exempt information from a document before disclosing it. There's even talk of introducing standard fees or graduated fees depending on the nature of the requester. It's likely that a new exemption, an absolute exemption, is introduced for cabinet minutes. The previous government has on two occasions used the ministerial veto under section 53 to exempt disclosure of cabinet minutes. Last year, Dominic Grieve, the Attorney-General, used the veto to block release of Cabinet Minutes relating to Scottish devolution. More recently, Andrew Lansley caused controversy by deciding to veto a tribunal order to publish the NHS Risk Register. On each occasion the veto has been used, the Commissioner has issued a report to Parliament expressing disappointment. However, recently he said that if the government feels strongly about cabinet minutes being kept secret, then an absolute exemption should be introduced. Bear in mind what the Prime Minister and Lord O'Donnell, the former head of the civil service, have said about FOI. This is a strong possibility. 
Looking at the various submissions to the committee, especially those from the Information Commissioner's Office, it's also likely that statutory limits for internal reviews, as well as considering the public interest test, are introduced. These will be to avoid delays in dealing with freedom of information requests. It may also be recommended that now that FOI has bedded in, the role of the qualified person under Section 36 be removed so that there is no delay in refusal notices being issued when this exemption is claimed. The Freedom of Information Act applies to information which is held by the authority at the time the request was received. But what about information which has been held previously but was deleted prior to the FOI request being received? The main tribunal decision on this point goes back to 2005 in Mr. Harper and the Information Commissioner, the Information Tribunal, as it was then called, ruled that the information which had been deleted, but which was still held in backup servers, was held for the purposes of the Act. The issue then was about the time it would take to retrieve that information, and whether this would be over the appropriate cost limit of £450 or £600. This case was recently followed by the first tier tribunal in Kellia and the Information Commissioner and the University of East Anglia. This concerned a request for an email about climate research from the university's climate change unit to a colleague in the US. The unit was previously caught up in ClimateGate when its servers were hacked into and emails were published which suggested that it had manipulated climate change data. The university argued that because the email was deleted, it was no longer held for the purposes of the Act. It was, though, still held on a backup server. The tribunal ruled, disagreeing with the commissioner, that it was a matter of common sense that the information was still held for the purposes of FOI. It would have to be retrieved from the backup servers and then exemptions would have to be considered before disclosure. For more on the definition of held for the purposes of FOI, see episode 26, which discusses the case involving the University of Newcastle and the Information Commissioner and the British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection. In September last year, it was widely reported that the Education Secretary, Michael Gove, and Department of Education officials had routinely used personal email accounts to discuss official, often controversial, department business. Apparently this was done in the mistaken belief that such emails would not be disclosable pursuant to an FOI request. Well, in December of last year, the Commissioner issued guidance which corrects this mistaken belief. He advises that FOI applies to official information held in private email accounts when held on behalf of the public authority. This includes text messages. There will be on occasions where, having searched its own systems, the public authority will be expected to ask employees, as well as contractors and others, to search their personal email accounts for information described in an FOI request. Public authorities should establish procedures for dealing with such requests and keep records of any private email account searches that they have requested. The Commissioner has now applied this guidance to the Michael Gove emails. He ruled that an email sent from Michael Gove's private email account was covered by FOI since it contained public authority business and was generated in the course of conducting the business of the authority. The Commissioner rejected the DFE's argument that the email was political and was not covered by FOI. The Department has now lodged an appeal with the Tribunal. 
This decision and the guidance from the Commissioner should serve as a warning to all public authorities, not just government departments. Senior officers and elected officials often have a habit of switching between personal and official email accounts. Whether this is done for convenience or to avoid FOI, awareness should be raised that such emails may well be disclosable pursuant to an FOI request. The Information Commissioner's guidance, last updated in December 2008, states that if a public authority wants to deem a request as vexatious, it must make a reasonable strong case that it can answer yes to more than one of the following questions. Will compliance with the request create a significant burden in terms of expense and distraction? Is the request designed to cause disruption or annoyance? Will the request have the effect of harassing the authority or its staff? Can the request be fairly be characterised as obsessive or manifestly unreasonable? And does the request have no serious purpose or value? Whilst the above is still a good guide, the tribunal continues to emphasise a common-sense approach as opposed to following a rigid checklist. This was also the case in the latest decision on Section 14 involving the Independent Police Complaints Commission and the Information Commissioner. It also answers the question, can costs of dealing with a request alone be enough to deem a request vexatious? The case concerned two requests to the IPCC, one for managed investigation reports over the three-year period, covering 438 cases, and the other for a request which had been the subject of an earlier request. The Commissioner ruled that the requests were not vexatious. At the Tribunal, the IPCC argued that they were vexatious and over the appropriate limit, having aggregated the costs of retrieval. The Tribunal agreed. At paragraph 15, in answer to the question, can costs alone be used to deem a request as vexatious, the Tribunal said, a request may be so grossly oppressive in terms of the resources and time demanded by compliance as to be vexatious, regardless of the intentions or bona fides of the requester. If so, it is not prevented from being vexatious just because the authority could have relied instead on Section 12. In response to FOI requests, public authorities sometimes argue that the information can be obtained from other sources, including the courts in litigation. They complain that FOI is used as a shortcut. Section 21 allows requests to be refused on the grounds that the information is reasonably accessible by other means. This is the exemption which was claimed in Newcastle-upon-Tyne Hospital NHS Trust and the Information Commissioner. The request was for statistics about the number of people dismissed over a three-year period. The Trust refused to provide the information on the grounds that it was reasonably accessible by way of an application in the Employment Tribunal litigation. Having lost before the Commissioner the Trust appeal to the Tribunal, the appeal was struck out because the judge considered that there was no reasonable prospect of it succeeding. He ruled that FOI rights are not put on hold if there is litigation between the parties. Further, information obtained under FOI can be used for any purpose whereas information obtained in litigation can only be used for that purpose. Consequently, litigation disclosure is not an adequate substitute for an FOI request. Unlike councillors, there is no requirement for local authorities to keep a register of officers' interests. 
Despite this, many do as an example of good governance, but usually restricted to senior officers. This inevitably leads to FOI requests for the same. In Greenwood and Bolton Council and the Information Commissioner, one such request was refused on the grounds that it was personal data, disclosure of which would be unfair. As with all Section 40 exemption cases, the test is, would disclosure breach one of the data protection principles? In other words, would it be fair and lawful to disclose? The Bolton Register applied to principal officers and included information about their business interests as well as private interests. The tribunal concluded that the names, departments, sections and job titles of all officers who had made entries on the register should be disclosed and that in addition, in relation to chief officers, information revealing other professional commitments such as consultancies and directorships should be disclosed. Disclosure would enable members of the public to scrutinise the information and challenge any inaccuracies or omissions which was likely to add frankness in disclosure. The tribunal said that the remainder of the information should be withheld, including membership of clubs, societies and voluntary bodies. Disclosure of this information would be likely to cause substantial distress and would be extremely intrusive into the lives of officers and disclosure would interfere with the private lives of third parties involved in the interest in question. This decision effectively leaves the public in a situation where it knows that an officer has identified a potential conflict of interest but not why the conflict arose unless that is the conflict relates specifically to the professional commitments of a chief officer. This decision has come in for some criticism, especially by local authority officers. They argue that they are not elected officials, yet they are being subjected to a greater level of scrutiny than others in the public and as well as the private sector. It's now common practice for unsuccessful job applicants to the public sector to make FOI requests for information about the recruitment process as well as about other candidates. Of course, the latter will be personal data and covered by the Section 40 exemption. However, as a previous Commissioner decision involving Leicester City Council shows, this cannot be used by the public authority to exempt all information. If you want to know more, have a look at episode 17 of this podcast. Sometimes requests are received by public authorities from people who have concerns with regard to the recruitment of a senior officer. In Bolton and East Riding of Yorkshire Council, the applicant requested disclosure of information concerning the appointment to the authority of a new chief executive, Mr Pearson. The information in issue included the content of confidential application forms, a presentation prepared by Mr Pearson as part of the recruitment process, and information contained in a number of other documents relating to the authority's decision-making process. Most of the information was held to be personal data, disclosure of which would be unfair under Section 40, Subsection 2. The Tribunal took account of the reasonable expectation of privacy of the candidates, as well as the fact that they were not, at that stage, discharging public functions. However, the Tribunal felt that some information should have been disclosed, for example the blank application form, as well as the names of senior officers involved in the recruitment process. Section 40 comes into play where public authorities receive requests for disclosure of statistics. There have been a number of decisions on this issue. The Commissioner has always maintained the line that truly anonymised statistics are not personal data and so Section 40 cannot be used to avoid disclosure. 
The test of whether statistics are truly anonymized is whether members of the public could identify the subjects by cross-referencing the statistics with information or knowledge already available to them or which could come into their possession in the future. This approach was supported by various cases in 2010. If you'd like to know more, have a look at episode 27 of this podcast. In a recent decision involving a Mr Smith, the Information Commissioner and Devon and Cornwall Constabulary, the request was for disclosure of information revealing the number of individuals investigated, cautioned or charged by police in connection with alleged abuses of trust by teaching staff under the Sexual Offences Act 2003. This is a common request to schools as well as local authorities. The tribunal held that the requested information amounted to mere statistical data, which on its own did not reveal the identity of individuals. However, when taken together with information in the public domain, that information could be used to identify individuals and so was personal data. In fact, it was sensitive personal data relating to individuals' criminal convictions. Disclosure of this would not be fair under the first data protection principles because there was no substantial public interest and hence no Schedule 3 condition was met in respect of the disclosure. Sometimes local authorities as well as the NHS organisations receive requests for information about the deceased. This information is sometimes also accessible under the Access to Health Records Act 1990. Consequently, it will be exempt under Section 21 of FOI. In other words, it is reasonably accessible by other means. Before applying the Section 21 exemption, a public authority must carefully consider if the applicant has the right under the 1990 Act, as it only applies in limited circumstances. Firstly, if the requester is not the personal representative of the deceased, or a person having a claim arising out of the death of the deceased, then he or she cannot access the information under the Access to Health Records Act. Secondly, the records being requested must be health records within the meaning of the Act. In Mar Tyres and the Information Commissioner and NHS Cambridgeshire, the requester sought all information held by the NHS in respect of her deceased mother, including information about the care received by her mother at a care home she was staying in prior to her death. The requester argued that she was the next of kin, proposed executor and trustee of the wills, and had a claim against her mother's estate under the intestacy rules. Before the tribunal, the requester argued that the commissioner had erred in concluding that the disputed information was exempt under Section 41, as no actionable breach of confidence would arise from the disclosure of the information. The tribunal gave short shrift to this argument, and this is not surprising given previous cases we have discussed in this podcast. The request also contended that the Commissioner should have found that the exemption under Section 21 was engaged on the basis that, as next of kin and nearest relative, she would have been entitled to obtain the disputed information under the 1990 Act. The tribunal disagreed. While she was the nearest relative, she was not the personal representative and so had no rights under the 1990 Act. Furthermore, the records being sought were not covered by the 1990 Act as they were not health records. Section 1.1 of the 1990 Act states that a health record is defined as a record which has been made by or on behalf of a health professional. 
health professionals are listed within Section 69 of the Data Protection Act and they do not include social workers. The Trust confirmed that the information held had not been prepared by or on behalf of a health professional. The Tribunal found that the requester would not have been able to obtain the disputed information from the Trust under the Access to Health Records Act and the Commissioner was correct to conclude that the disputed information was not reasonably accessible resulting in the fact that the Section 21 exemption would not be engaged. This case shows the importance of local authorities and the NHS organisations checking to see what is being requested, in other words, a health record or a social work record, and checking that the requester has a right of access under the 1990 Act. If the answer to either question is in the negative, then the request has to be considered in the light of the Section 41 exemption for breach of confidence. The Section 42 exemption for legal professional privilege is often relied upon by public authorities when refusing to disclose legal advice. It's a qualified exemption and so subject to a public interest test. The Tribunal has though recognised that there is a strong public interest in public authorities being able to take free and frank advice. The majority of refusals to disclose legal advice have been upheld by the Tribunal over the years. The exemption does not just apply to actual legal advice. Even a simple list of legal authorities considered by legal advisers falls within the exemption. In Jackson and the Information Commissioner and the Electoral Commission, the appellant had requested information in connection with an Electoral Commission investigation into donations made to the Liberal Democrats by a private company. It was alleged that the company was an impermissible donor under electoral law. The Electoral Commission issued a short press release explaining that there was no legal justification for looking at who was actually behind the company. The requester asked for the list of legal authorities under which the opinion was based. The Commissioner and the Tribunal upheld the refusal on the basis of Section 42. The Tribunal confirmed that a simple list of cases can attract legal professional privilege and it found that in view of the limited assistance this would offer the requester, the public interest favoured maintaining the exemption. Increasingly, local authorities are outsourcing management of leisure centres to the private sector with a view to achieving cost savings. They're frequently asked to disclose information about their business arrangements with these private sector partners, especially tender documents, business plans, financial models and the like. In Vissia and the Information Commissioner and the London Borough of Southwark, the request was for the most recent business plan approved by the Council and received from a leisure centre management company with whom the Council had contracted. The Council argued successfully that disclosure would harm the commercial interests of the company, and the Tribunal agreed. The Council did disclose the amount of money being paid to the company despite the latter's objections. It concluded that the amount should be open to public scrutiny to ensure the public's money was being used effectively. However, it refused to disclose the profit and loss schedule. It accepted the company's argument that disclosing it would be damaging. It considered that the profit and loss account demonstrated the company's approach and methodology to determine income and managing risks, including its ratios and allowances for all expenditure items, including staff costs, overhead, surplus and contingency. By the time of the request in this case, the disputed information was two years old. Normally, commercial sensitivity decreases over time. 
However, the tribunal concluded that the information was still sensitive and of use to the company's competitors. The tribunal was satisfied that there was a continuity of approach to the company's budgeting and business processes, which would be revealed by the disclosure of the 2007 business plan. This knowledge would be of value to the company's competitors in future tendering processes relating to similar facilities and services. It therefore concluded that the age of the information was largely irrelevant, the commercial sensitivity of this specific information did not diminish over time, and so the information remained commercially sensitive. That concludes episode 28 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. If you want to keep up to date with the latest developments in information law, feel free to attend one of my Freedom of Information update workshops or my internet seminars. Both carry CPD points. More details at www.actnow.org.uk Don't forget, ActNow Training is now one of the UK's leading providers of courses leading to the ISEB Certificate in Freedom of Information and Data Protection. The next courses are being held in London and Manchester in a few weeks. If you'd like to know more, please email info at actnow.org.uk Until the next time, goodbye.